Well, good morning. It is good to be with you guys today. My name is uh, Shannon Sword. I'm one of the pastors at Simple Bible Church and uh, work with college students. Um, I'm married, have three kids. They are uh, college age and above. I've got a daughter at UNT and a daughter at, uh, at UT Tyler, and, um, and they're doing well. And um, my wife is carrying on baking waffles over uh, at uh, TBC this morning for our, uh, our college students that are there. Um, but it's, uh, it, I'll tell you that through the years, it's been fun to uh, be a part of what, what has gone on here in Central Texas. I, I grew up in the Dallas area, and when I first came down here, I remember um, 24 years ago, I met Dave. Dave was uh, newly married. His, uh, his head was shaved, and I said, so you're a young guy. Did, is that intentional? No, no, I just lost a bet. I go, you lost a bet? He goes, yeah, I had a little thing going with the junior hires and lost a bet. And so they got to shave my head. And so I was already getting a good glimpse into the, uh, the mind of uh, Dave McMurray at that moment. And, uh, but it's, been, it's really been a joy. He and I have shared um, uh, a lot of joy and a lot of sadness and hard times and good times, hard conversations and, and good conversations through the years. Um, I remember when uh, he was first tapped uh, at Temple Bible to, uh, to lead out here in Colleen as we begin thinking about what would it look like to plant a church over here. And I tell you guys, um, just driving into the parking lot this morning um, and seeing the changes that have gone on, uh, you know, a new parking lot, a new playground, a new um, front uh, lobby area and, uh, and veneer for, the, for the, the church, it's a sweet thing. And then just uh, before everybody assembled here, gathering back in, in Dave's office with some of the leadership and seeing just how sincerely um, this church takes their time before the Lord, uh, it was so authentic, it was so honest and real. Um, it's a sweet thing that is, that is happening here, you guys. Uh, we talk about, you know, the family of God, and even as uh, we dedicated this, uh, the family this morning, I just thought about the our, ecclesi, uh, our ecclesi, ecclesiastical family, the, the family of the church. And, uh, and for some of you here, I, I just suspect that this may be more uh, of a real family to you than even your biological family. And, uh, and I praise God for that. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing, and it's so, so important in our lives um, to share that together. Um, <clears throat> well, the, the series that you guys have been going through... <clears throat> is who is Jesus? I heard that uh, you've come up through John 10, and, uh, and so we're going to jump ahead today to John 19. Um, it's my job to get Jesus dead and buried, and Dave's job next week to get him resurrected. And so I think Dave has the better job by far, needless to say. Um, actually, it's just our job to report on these uh, events in history. Um, but today, as we were reminded with the kids, it's, uh, it's Palm Sunday and it marks the beginning of, uh, of the, the, what we call the Passion Week of Jesus' ministry when he was ushered into Jerusalem uh, by all his followers, laying down palm branches, welcoming, welcoming um, their king and their savior uh, into, to, to be their rightful king. And uh, upon arriving, uh, Israel's uh, leadership reject him, um, arrest him, they try him, they scourge him, and they crucify him. And so today we're going to be picking up at this point in the gospel story. It's, it's late Friday afternoon and Jesus has just been crucified and he's died. And so I would just remind all of us 
that, that one of the, uh, the primary tenets of our faith uh, and, and of the gospel is that Jesus truly died. Like that is so important to the gospel message. Jesus truly died. Two, 2,000 years ago, Jesus was nailed to um, a tree and became sin on, on your behalf and on my behalf. He chose the unthinkable. He took our place. He took, he took our punishments upon himself, and God poured out his wrath on the Son of Man. And only when justice had been fully satisfied, only then did Jesus give up his life. And he died. His sweat, it quit dripping. His lungs quit filling. His heart quit beating. And his body went limp as it hung lifeless on the cross. And you can just imagine the stark stillness of creation as it, as it looked on, holding her breath in disbelief as if her favored athlete, her champion, her king, her redeemer, now limp and motionless would at any moment be revived and and walked off the field, but this was not the case. And the earth went dark and silent. And Jesus plunged into darkness on our behalf. He plunged into darkness, and it drives the faith of two men out of the shadows and into the light, really for the first time. So today we're going to look at John 19, verses 38 through 42. Um, you can read along in your Bible or up on uh, the screens here in your apps. And this is what it says. After these things, <clears throat> Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. And so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus, they bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. I love listening to, uh, to podcasts, and I was listening to one a number of months ago, and this was on the nature of discovery. And, uh, and the, the researcher uh, made this observation uh, about just that, that journey of discovery that, that we all do in so many different areas of our life. And, uh, and he says that uh, the discovery is less about the eureka moments and more about the, hmm, that's interesting moments. In other words, are you willing to like follow the, the facts, the truth, where it leads, um, and not to where our preconceived ideas kind of demand that it, that it goes, right? Um, how often, as I listen to that, I just thought, you know, how often we miss truths of Scripture because of our own preconceived ideas, kind of demanding that this is where it leads us instead of really following um, the facts that we, that we see there. And so let me pray to that end, that we would follow the facts as we see them in God's word today. Father, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, um, and for us to be willing to declare, hmm, that's interesting. In places where the truth that we see even here today would lead us maybe in a different direction than what we have come to understand or believe. Father, we ask for that and that we would grow in faith and obedience. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 
Well, the common fate of all who were crucified by Rome was that they would be, um, uh, their corpses would be taken out and they'd be dumped into a common grave outside the city walls to be mutilated, to be eaten and torn apart by wild beasts. Um, this was a practice, no doubt, to intimidate any, anyone uh, that had you know, thoughts of rebellion against the empire. And what's interesting is that that was commonly what happened, yet this would not be Jesus' fate. His uh, burial unfolded in a very different way, and we should say, hmm, that's interesting. So today I want us to consider the men that were at Jesus' burial, the method of Jesus' burial, and the meaning in Jesus' burial. So let's start with the men that were at Jesus' burial. So Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are men of wealth, they're men of influence, they're men of understanding. Uh, They enjoy a very privileged life. Um, They're part of what we call the Sanhedrin, or what was called the Sanhedrin, a 71-member ruling council that governed Israel in all its affairs, uh, whether they were legal or religious or civil. Um, And this is the same council that, uh, along with the high priests, were responsible for having Jesus arrested, scourged, and, uh, and crucified. And, and, and what we have to understand is that for any member um, of this council to go, uh, to step out of line, to go against the, uh, the council's wishes, would no doubt mean that they would uh, for sure be disbarred and removed from power. And Nick and Joseph are a part of this council. They never openly followed Jesus during his ministry, but now, at his death, they come out of the shadows identifying with him for the first time, clearly identifying with him in his death and burial. And we should say, huh, that's interesting. Why? Like, why now? Well, what do we know about him? Uh, Joseph, we read um, uh, a few different places in Scripture, some things uh, about the, the, the man Joseph of Arimathea. In John 19, we read that he was a disciple of Jesus but secretly for fear of the Jews. In Matthew 27, we read that that he was a wealthy man. In Luke 23, that he was a good and righteous man who had not consented to the council's um, decision and action. And then of Nicodemus, um, John 3 is a long discussion that Nicodemus comes and has um, with with the rabbi, with Jesus. And, uh, And he says, he says, so we know that You are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Now, at this point, his understanding is very surface level, and Jesus has this long discussion with him, um, and he tells him that there's some things that are needed in order for you to see the kingdom of God. And we're going to talk more about that here in a minute in my message. Um, In John 7, we read that uh, about his defense of Jesus. Before the council, he has to really kind of walk... um, carefully as he presents a defense to the Sanhedrin council um, uh, who's desiring to have Jesus arrested. He says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So he uses the law and he uses reason to buy Jesus time. And now here in, in John 19, we find him here at Jesus' burial, both of these men at Jesus' burial. So here's the thing. These two were at the very top of, of the food chain, so to speak, in Israel. Uh, they were teachers, they were judges, they were governors. Um, they were men of wealth and influence. And as such, they had a lot to lose. These guys had a lot to lose. 
And it seems that they were not the only ones who had a lot to lose. There's other members of the Sanhedrin that uh, also um, uh, found Jesus' teaching compelling and convincing, but they too were were, um, afraid to openly follow Jesus. We read in John 12, it says that, Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they love the glory or, or the praise. They love the glory or praise that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And here's what I know. That the praise from uh, or fear of men impacts the obedience of, of uh, these men as it does for all people, Right? The fear of or the praise from men impacts the obedience of every single one of us, no matter how mature we, uh, we are in our walk with the Lord. So I have a few questions for us. A few questions to wrestle with. One is, to what degree does the fear of and the praise from others impact your own courage to follow Jesus in a manner that he would desire? To what degree does... The fear of and the praise from others impact your courage to follow Jesus in the manner that he would desire. Another question, just one of those hypotheticals, right? If we lived in another country, one where it was illegal to follow Jesus, uh, and you were arrested because someone accused you of being a follower of Christ, would there be evidence to incriminate your life? There should be, right? There should be. If so, what would that evidence be? See, John says that Joseph was a secret disciple of Jesus, and that's implied of Nicodemus as well. Um, And so another question, is it ever appropriate to have a secret faith, to be a secret disciple of Jesus? And if so, when? I mean, we read it right here in the text, so um, what is that uh, getting at? I discussed this question with uh, a buddy of mine, and uh, and as as we... thought it through and talked it through, um, we realized that, you know, as you begin a relationship with somebody, get to know somebody, where you work, where you recreate, wherever it is, your neighbor, it's probably not best to lead out in that, conversa- in that conversation or that relationship with, oh, by the way, I'm a follower of Jesus, right? That may not be the first thing you want to lead with. It may be far better that they see the aroma of your good works, like they see your, your faith through your works and then they begin to ask uh, their questions, right? Um, so the deal is we don't go looking for trouble, but the truth is trouble will often find us as followers of Jesus. Jesus made that clear. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the writers in the New Testament make it abundantly clear that uh, trouble will find us, and it's going to call out our faith in Jesus. And we read these words in 1 Peter 3 where it says that, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, uh, for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. Over and over and over again, God calls his people out of the shadows. You thought about that? Over and over again, God calls his people out of the shadows. I came to faith when I was 19. <clears throat> that was a lot of years ago, and um, about a year into my newfound faith, <clears throat> I went to Texas A&M, and uh, yep, 
I'm only a two percenter. I was only there for a year, so I, I, you know, I just feel wrong about even doing the whoop thing. Um, but while while there, I ended up with a, one of those luck of the draw situations to find your your roommates. And so one I knew, one was a friend from back home, an acquaintance really from back home uh, in Plano. And then the other two, so he was a like a nominal believer, like he just uh, talked it, but never went to church. He didn't really see any signs of that in his life. Another one uh, was a was a true agnostic. So I just don't know that you can really know. And then the third roommate, Ted. Ted was a very open and devout, if you will, atheist. And Ted was such a challenge to my life. I tried the best I could as this young and uh, and, and and prone to fail. Uh, follower of Jesus to model Christ to my, my roommates. But Ted was such a challenge to me. Ted was exceptionally bright. Ted carried a 4.0 in electrical engineering. Um, I too was studying electrical engineering. I had nothing, nowhere near that GPA. Um, <clears throat> Ted, everything he did, like he, I, my, my, uh, I had done some work on my car and I barely made it back to A&M and, uh, and Ted says, well, help, let me get out there and see if I can figure it out. We adjusted the valves, and the thing just starts running really, really smooth. I'm like, how in the world? Ah, I rebuilt the car when I was younger. Figures. I, I, I start working out, and uh, in, in the gym where I'm at, there's Nautilus equipment. He goes with me one day. Um, we work out together. I'm trying to explain how to use the equipment properly. He goes home, studies up on it, and next time we go, he's teaching me how to do it. Like, everything we did, Ted could one-up me, Right? And, uh, and he loved to mock, mock Christianity and anybody who embraced it. I never went looking for trouble with Ted, but every now and then trouble found me, right? Ted was there and trouble found me from time to time. <clears throat> and I would stand my ground the best I could, but it's never easy. You know, am I right? I mean, it's never easy in those moments to stand your ground. Um, let me just be pastoral here for a moment. <clears throat> God will place every one of us in the cultural crosshairs um, on a regular basis. And will we be ruled by our fear of or our praise from others? Um, generally, a true child of God, as you're growing in your faith and your relationship with Jesus, increasingly you find it a joy to walk in obedience with your Savior as you're maturing, as you're getting to know Jesus. It can be very sweet when it's just me that's impacted by my obedience to Jesus. But it's when my obedience to God impacts others that things start heating up. It's then that I'm most tempted to compromise. It's then that we're all most tempted to compromise. Chase Bowers, our global missions pastor at TBC, says this. He says that obedience or passion feels an awful lot like condemnation to those who aren't doing it. Oswald Chambers, he says this about obedience. He says, if we obey God... It's going to cost other people more than it costs us. And that's where the pain begins. If we are in love with our Lord, obedience is a delight. It costs us very little. But to those who do not love him, our obedience does cost a great deal. If we obey God, it will mean that other people's comforts and plans are upset. And they will ridicule us as if to say, you call this Christianity? We can disobey God if we choose, and it will bring immediate relief to the situation, but it's going to grieve our Lord. If, however, we obey God, he will care for those who have suffered the consequences of our obedience and use it for good in their lives. We must simply obey and leave the consequences to him. 
And then he wraps up this, this uh, thought with these foreboding words. He says, beware the inclination to dictate to God what consequences you would allow as a condition of your obedience to him. These men, Joseph and Nick, they're no longer living in conditional, conditional obedience. They have come out of the shadows uh, matter of fact, at this point in, uh, in the, the gospel story, they are really the only two followers of Jesus that are out in the limelight, in the spotlight right now. And, uh, and they have all the credentials and all the things to lose to make their stance worth noting. So let, me, uh, let us turn now to the method of Jesus' burial. It required, I believe, a very careful plan. Oftentimes, I think we miss this as we read through this section of Scripture because I believe it required a careful plan. Um, so when a crucifixion occurred, um, the truth was that, that if it occurred before a Sabbath, that all the bodies had to be down from their crosses. They had to be taken care of. In other words, they had to be dead. They had to have expired, removed from their crosses, and then to be taken out and thrown in uh, the dump outside uh, the city. And, uh, and this was no ordinary Sabbath. Like This was a very special Sabbath as it was the Passover, the most holy day uh, for Israel. So from the time of Jesus' death, which occurred at the ninth hour, which would have been 3 p.m., so when the body had to be fully dealt with, right? like they had to be done touching the dead body, um, that had to be by the 12th hour, which would have been 6 p.m., which would have been sundown. If that was the case, there's plenty of time to take Jesus' body and throw him outside the city gates in a dump. Um, but the truth is there was very, very little time if they were going to give Jesus even the most expedient um, Jewish burial. And so many scholars believe that, uh, that Joseph and Nick were standing at the ready with all the supplies that they needed to provide Jesus a proper burial. So consider these facts. In, in Mark 15, Joseph moved so quickly to request the, the body of Jesus um, after he had died. And I pick up in the text now. It says, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the, the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Like Joseph had to be there outside the chambers of, uh, of Pilate at the ready to move and to, and, to, and to request the body of Jesus. And it happened so quickly that even Pilate's like, there's no way he's dead. So he has to check with the centurion and says, no, in fact, he has given up uh, his life. He's dead. Um, also note that they came with the burial linens and 75 pounds of expensive burial, spi uh, burial spices. These aren't things that um, on a Sabbath, right before the Passover, you're going to be able to go and acquire quickly. These things had to have been set aside and they come with them in hand. Um, I am sure that as they get Jesus' body, um, they begin to clean his body. And no doubt in the wounds of Jesus, they are removing dried blood. They're removing um, bits of iron and stone and glass as they clean his body. And I'm sure they are reliving the torturous um, scourging of Jesus that he went through. I'm sure they wept. I'm sure they, their desire was absolutely to honor their king and their savior. 
And they begin to wrap his corpse in the burial linen layered with these burial spices. This was a process that usually took uh, at the minimum a couple of hours. And so they hurry through this process. But know this, they knew that Jesus was dead. Uh, And then we find that they brought Jesus to a newly hewn grave, just a stone's throw from Golgotha. The place of the skull is what that means, where most crucifixions took place. Once Jesus' body was wrapped in the linens and spices, he was placed on a shelf inside this tomb, this brand new tomb that happened to belong to Joseph of Arimathea. Interesting. Uh, Then a 1,000 to 2,000 pound round stone was rolled over um, the, uh, the entrance to that grave, um, sealing it. See, here's the thing. Joseph and Nick absolutely made a plan. They were determined that their Messiah would get a proper burial, right? And it seems that, uh, that so was God. It seems like uh, that, that God was very involved in this whole process as well, as well, which brings me to our final point, and that is the meaning in Jesus' burial. Because here's the thing. Jesus had to be God. All the facts point to the, to the fact that Jesus was God. Joseph and Nick, as noble as they were, were not, were not likely, not, not likely willing to take all these risks for all that they were going to forfeit in their lives if this was not a big, big deal. They were coming to bring honor to their Savior and to their King. Um, They wouldn't do this if Jesus was simply, as so many say today, just a good teacher, right? No doubt they would not risk that if if they felt that Jesus was nothing more than a good teacher. Um, They knew that on this Passover, when Israel was offering up a bleeding lamb um, for for her sins, that God was offering the true spotless lamb of God. He was offering Jesus. See, trouble had found these two and... uh, and they, for their friend, were, were ready to risk everything. At the same time, I think that God was ensuring that the, the prophecies about Jesus' death among the rich uh, would be fulfilled, as it says in, in Isaiah 53, that he would be buried in a rich man's grave. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man. But I think God was also looking ahead um, to uh, something that none of his followers could have anticipated, and that is that throughout the centuries that there would be many, many people um, who would uh, uh, ask about the details of Jesus' coming resurrection. See, God was ensuring that the body would rest in a secured location um, so that the authenticity of the coming resurrection would be, would be verifiable. Um, it's clearly part of God's providential plan that Pilate places a full Roman detachment there at the grave of Jesus, that this stone is sealed with the crest of Rome, knowing that if anybody moves that stone away, they were going to face certain death. That was a, all a big deal, and God was saying, here's where it's at. This body's not going anywhere. Nobody's going to get near this body. Nobody's going to tamper with this body. And we should say, hmm, that's interesting. See, the meaning, meaning of Jesus' burial is that Jesus has to be God because it's fitting and good for, for the Messiah to have, um, for his body to be treated in the fashion that it was in his death and burial. Um, but it required an awful lot of planning. Um, also, he was really, truly dead. <laughs> the only way for, for, for Jesus, uh, the, the, the physical body of Jesus 
to become fully alive is for it to be a supernatural event um, that God the Father um, ordained. And next week, you need to come back, by the way, as Dave talks about the resurrection of Jesus. And finally, his coming resurrection must be supernatural because no one was getting near that, that, getting near that body. Uh, it was sealed and it was guarded. You see, skeptics throughout the centuries were going to come. We know this today, right? Skeptics throughout the centuries were going to come, and they were going to question all these things. But God in his wisdom anticipated every bit of that. Um, at one time, Nicodemus, Nicodemus was that skeptic of sorts. And he wrestled with Jesus on the night that he came to him. Um, Nick, Nick most likely um, acknowledged that teacher, teacher, recognized that Jesus uh, was a good teacher, um, but Jesus pushed Nick's logic, telling him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus went on to tell Nick that night, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. See, Jesus was pointing back to the Exodus story. When Israel was coming uh, through the desert and where they would make camp, there was all kinds of poisonous snakes there, asps and cobras, and the people were being bit, and it meant certain death, and some were dying. And God tells Moses, I want you to fashion a bronze snake, and I want you to place it on a pole, and I'm gonna ra- you to raise that tall pole up in the middle of camp. And no matter where everyone is at around camp, when they get bit, they're to turn their gaze to this, this image that has been raised up on a pole, and they will be rescued. They'll be rescued. A.W. Tozer says this. He says the faith, that faith is the gaze of a soul upon a saving God. I love that. Just nice and simple. That's what faith is. It's turning my gaze, the gaze of my soul, to the only one who can save me instead of to all the other gods that I tend to run to in my life, all the other lesser gods, all the other idols I turn from them and I look to the only one who can save me. So my question is, where is the gaze of your soul focused today? Where is the gaze of your soul focused today? You and I may never be bit by an asp or a cobra, um, but the truth is there is a snake of another type, a very diabolical type, whose poison, when it reaches our hearts and our minds, we are corrupted and it means eternal death for us. And so we too have to turn the gaze of our souls and look to Jesus. He was the one who was lifted up, the only one who can save our souls eternally. For Israel, it was to to find healing from that poison immediately and continue to live. For us, it is to look and find healing that leads to eternal life. So have you turned the gaze of your soul upon the saving face of Jesus? At the um, end of my year at A&M, I got the luck of the draw to go back and and pack up the apartment, to clean up the apartment. And uh, so I was there that night. It was late in the evening, and I get a phone call, and it's Ted. And uh, he says, hey, man, you're at the apartment, right? I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, it was just a landline. You didn't have cell phones. And I says, yeah, I'm at the apartment. And he's like, okay, hey, I'm coming over. And I, I, he goes, I got, I got a, uh, a big thing I want to tell you. And I said, all right. 
And I, I had no idea what in the world this could be, nor had I ever seen Ted this excited about anything, right? So the knock on the, on the door comes. I open the door, and he is standing there soaking wet. And before I can ask the obvious question, he, uh, he says, he gives me this big old hug, and he tells me he's just been baptized. And I'm like, what? Ted, what? I don't understand. And he goes, Shannon, I know that I gave you such a hard time, but the truth is that I, I began to meet with some, some navigators on campus, some folks that were walking me through the scriptures, and, uh, and I came to faith, and I was just baptized, and uh, I just want to come and let you know that I am so sorry for all the ways uh, that, I, that I made life hard on you um, through this past year, and I want you just to share in, in my joy that I've come to faith. Um, I was amazed. I tell you, I could not understand how in the world God could use all my poor and weak attempts to, to honor Jesus, to obey Jesus, and, and I, I thought none of them were being seen, none of them were being heard, and in fact, this was what God was up to. You see, here's the thing. Jesus plunged into darkness on my behalf, on your behalf, to rescue us, to rescue creation, to restore creation so that we can come out of the shadows and into the light, carrying out the good works that the Father has for each one of us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for choosing to love 2,000 years ago. That in the garden, you, uh, you made that choice and you took our place. And when the time was appropriate, you gave up your life, and you died. And Father, even as we look at these events that took place um, in the hours after your death, Father, we're reminded of the fact that you are, you are God, that you love us. Father, we pray that, uh, that if anybody is here and has not turned the gaze of their soul to the sa- saving face of Jesus, that they would do so. That there is no other um, that can save them. So, Father, we praise you. We ask that uh, we would have great courage, um, that when trouble finds us, we would come out of the shadows and into the light and follow after the God who loves us in obedience and that our lives would be a sweet aroma to those around us. I pray that, Father, even for this church, this, this church family here today whose lives are a sweet aroma to the community. I pray, Father, that you would fan that into flame more and more and more as they grow and that there would be many that would ask them about their faith and they would give a strong defense. Father, we pray for your blessing on this body and your blessing on everyone here. In the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.